build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Welcome to Live from Five Point, our annual live Dirtbag Diaries from the cozy location of Steve's Guitars in downtown Carbondale, Colorado. We had four guests this year, packed house, and in between sets, New Belgium served up some incredible refreshments. Patagonia and the crew from Five Point helped make this happen, so a big thank you to everyone who made this event possible. We look forward to it so much. Today, you're gonna to hear stories from snowboarder Kevin Pierce about finding happiness after suffering a traumatic brain injury and skier Chris Davenport about the aesthetics of mountains and ski lines that he seeks. In the next episode, you'll hear from James Walsh and his epic odyssey in filmmaking, and Kyle Dempster, a world-class alpinist who became a bicyclist. We've only lightly edited the pieces so that they maintain the feel of the event. And if you like what you hear, we hope you're gonna come join us next year. Five Point is an incredible event, and we are so proud to be involved in it. I'm Fitz Cahal, Welcome to the Five Point Film Festival. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In 2009, snowboarder Kevin Pierce was one of the best in the world. He and his crew of friends were pushing themselves and the sport of snowboarding. They were doing harder and harder tricks. It was evolving. Kevin had won medals at the X Games. He competed against and beaten the indomitable Sean White, not once, but three times. And the sport it really felt like it was about to change, that this new generation was coming up to step up to Sean White. Kevin was focused as he trained to qualify for the Olympics, and on an early morning training run, he had a life-changing accident. He still struggles on a day-to-day -day basis with his injury, but he's worked hard to define a new path to happiness. Kevin picks it up from here. First and foremost, I'd just like to thank all you guys for showing up. I was asked to do this, and I thought we were going to be in a uh, studio together, talking back and forth, and then I walked in and saw these chairs, and I was like, oh boy. <laughs> I was up in Park City, and I was trying one of these new tricks called a cab double cork, and it was, I'd never, I had a couple other double corks, and I'd never landed this one, but I was so close to it, and you know, it was really important for me to get it, and woke up early, kind of went up there, was riding, warming up, and it's pretty wild because I don't remember anything that went on that day, but you know, I've heard a lot of stories from friends and family. And then I dropped in and was trying this trick and came around and I was uh, in the half pipe and came down sideways, 90 degrees, instead of riding out forward and caught my front edge and just slammed fully head down at the bottom of the half pipe. And I didn't get my hands down or anything. And you know, I was immediately knocked out. And there's some pretty crazy fo photos that were taken. And then there's some footage and I don't remember any of that day or the next month and a half, so it's just like crazy to see and hear about the stories and not remember any of it. At such a young age, to lose that much of your life is just pretty wild. And then it was 
a month and a half in critical care at the University of Utah and then three and a half months at uh, Craig Hospital in Denver doing like eight hour days of rehab and then a year and a half back in Vermont of doing rehab with my family and then I uh, just recently got to move back out to California where I'm living on my own and it's pretty, there's some crazy stuff that has happened but I had to uh, get my license again because my mom convinced me that when you get a traumatic brain injury, they take your license away, which isn't true. But <laughs> she uh, she had me do driver's ed again with the same guy I did it with in high school. So <laughs> that was pretty brutal. But I did get back to it, and I am back on the road safe again. And yeah, so that's there's been a lot of hurdles that I've had to come over throughout the whole thing. What in in terms of what has this accident taken from you? Like, what, is, what does this cost you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's wild. It's cost me a lot. It was like when you're doing something at the top level, like I wasn't snowboarding. It's like I, I was young. I was like, I think I bought my first house when I was like 19. And I was on this like set path, making all this money and winning all these events and flying around the world with my buddies and just, you know, living this surreal life. And then it was just like such a set path. It was like no college. It was like, all right, I'm going to be a snowboarder here for the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to do. And then just in an instant, it was just totally taken away from me, which is, you know, it was hard. And it's been really hard to deal with it. But how have you dealt with it? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's kind of still what I'm working on now is dealing with it and figuring out what I'm going to do next. And it's like, you know, I'm just so lucky that I've been able to, you know, come back from such a severe injury. The hard work is really kind of what's got me back and really, you know, I feel like I was so dedicated and, you know, that's kind of what got me to the top of snowboarding is just working so hard and, you know, just having this mind and that's kind of what's got me back here to the top of life again. Can you be around snowboarding now? I mean, do you, you know, obviously you had an incredible friends, you had your um, the actual friends posse of snowboarders that were sort of um, the, the antidote to Sean White's sort of seclusion. Um, are you still in that community? Can you be around snowboarding or is it, or is it too painful to, to, to be around that? Yeah, you know, I can still be around it and I have still, I am still around it quite a bit. You know, I'm, uh, I've kind of been getting into some new things. Public speaking is something that I've been getting into big and along with that it kind of goes hand in hand with announcing and I've been kind of doing the announcing of the X Games which is cool like but then at the same time it's really hard to be watching that stuff and watching my buddies do what I want to be doing so badly but I can't anymore so it's kind of like it's hard but I've been you know able to find a way to do it and really kind of enjoy just being there and realizing how lucky I am to be up there at the half pipe and hanging with those guys and but you are able to snowboard some right I mean it's just that you can't compete at this, the highest level right I mean what kind of snowboarding I mean are you still riding regularly or, or what, what's your relationship with snowboarding now? Yes, yeah, snowboarding, I'm still getting to do it a lot. I actually got to go snowboarding a ton this year and I got a lot of good snow and a lot of powder. And it's like, it's taken that turn where it was really, my focus was half pipe and slope style and jumps. And that was kind of where I was and that's what I did all winter. And now it's kind of, you know, totally the opposite of that. I, I get to wake up now and, you know, just go out there and ride the mountains and really that's what it's all about for me is finding the powder and you know the backcountry and just kind of the more mellow things just taking turns and just you know I can really realize and understand what it means just to be up in the mountains now and how awesome that is. What about your injury stops you from, from going and competing? Is it is it physical or is it mental? Like what what are the actual restraints of it? 
Yeah, you know, it's hard, there's a lot, but you know, one of the biggest is my eyes and my vision, and it's so hard just because when I'm, it's like when I'm sitting here, they're pretty good when I take my glasses off, but then like this morning we went on a run, and it's like when I'm running or when my body's moving, everything is totally double vision, so like when I'm on a snowboard, everything's double, so it's hard like when you're trying to go hit a jump, to like to see if you take off on that one or that one, <laughs> like what jump you pick to take off on. So that one has really kind of given me the biggest issue, and then along with that is just learning kind of what kind of multiple head hits and like kind of if I hit my head again, what will happen? I've, it's just not worth it to even think about putting myself in that situation to hit my head again, just because it's so fragile now. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think that the, the process has given you though? You know, like it's, it's clear that what it's taken away, what do you think it's, what do you think you've gained from going through this? Um, wow, that's a heavy one. I've gained a lot, you know, I've kind of gained a whole new outlook on life and you know, it was, Really, I took it for granted, and you know, I just kind of never really kind of stepped back and was able to have a real look at life and understand, you know, really what I had and how lucky I was. And you know, it's still that way. So much is take was taken away from me, and you know, I don't have so much of what I did have, but I still have so much, and you know, I'm just so thankful. And then, as you went through all this, the all this sort of understanding and the process of recovering and. Um, coming back to being able to ride again, was it easy to stay happy? Was it, was it something you had to work for constantly? Like how, how did you avoid depression? Did you end up with, like being depressed by the fact that you weren't able to do this thing that you loved anymore um, at the level that you were capable of it? Um, or was it an easy act to stay focused on what is positive and all those positive things we've already mentioned? Yeah, you know, it's been hard. It's kind of been an up and down, and there's been a lot of positives, but then there's been a lot of negatives that have come along with this injury, and it's like, for a long time there, I was okay and able to get through it, and, you know, then there were times that I'd get very low and things would be really hard, and, you know, now I've gotten to the point where it's been three and a half years, and, you know, I find myself in a really good place and just so happy, like I was saying, just feeling so lucky to, to be alive and be here. I was just up in Calgary what was it, last week, uh, week and a half ago, and I was at this rehab hospital, and it's just amazing to see what so many kids that sustain traumatic brain injuries, what kind of shape they're in. I mean, I was there in half the, half the room where these kids lying on these boards, and they couldn't even move. You know, they had the doctors holding their heads up, and they couldn't talk, they couldn't do anything. And I mean, the fact that I'm here and just like, so amazing, that's kind of really put it in perspective for me, but then like, Having lost so much, it's like it's it, it goes back and forth. But you know, I really found a way to be able to, you know, really become happy with what's going on and how things are now. And you're doing work with um, uh, traumatic brain injuries, obviously. I mean, you just mentioned you were up in Calgary um, at the hospital up there. Um, you have a have a campaign coming up, right? Uh, the the love your brain thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When you go through having a traumatic brain injury, you know, I really hated my brain. A little example is, here's a little story. So a couple months ago, I was in the grocery store with my buddy and we're just like shopping around. And I go into the produce section and I'm in there and I'm looking for bell peppers. And I walk up to the guy and I go, hey man, do you have any vegetables? Like, and Jack runs up to me, he's like, Kevin, what are you doing, man? What's going on? And I was just like, uh, uh. And it was just like, I do ridiculous things, and there's little things. Like, I walk outside, and I can't find my car. 
And it's like, you know, we do that. Everybody does that. Instead of walking out and being like, I hate myself. I'm such an idiot. What the heck? I'm just like, you know, I've just kind of learned how to step back and really kind of, you know, take it in. And that's been a hard one. But one of these um, doctors I had, his name was Dr. Amen, and he's a, uh, you know, a cognitive doctor, obviously. And his whole thing for me was to love your brain. And it's like, instead of just like really getting mad at myself and hating myself, he's like, you need to love your brain just because of how, how really destructive it is if you like tell yourself these negative thoughts. What do you think, like, what do you, what do you tell these people in this room? You know, like you've gone through something that hopefully none of us ever have to go through. Um, but what do you tell them? What do you say? How, when someone says, how do you be happy? changes are thrown at us and you know as hard as it is to accept that we're going to go through life and things are going to be thrown at us and you know we're going to go through difficult times but you know whatever is thrown at you and whatever you have to deal with you know it really is possible with the right help and the right support and the right way if you do that you can you know come back and be happy and it's not always easy and it's not always quick you know it's been three and a half years for me and you know it, it definitely does take patience sometimes but you know, really, you can come back from anything. And I think that's a really important lesson for this one because, you know, I think that that's really hard sometimes for people to understand and figure out. They get so low that they just feel like it's over. But, you know, if you really do work at it and put everything into it, you really can come back. Kevin, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Can everyone please give Kevin a big round of Chris Davenport has been a big mountain skier for decades, and that's a rarity for any athlete to be continually at the top of their game for so long. He's traveled to Alaska, Antarctica, the Himalaya for skiing, pioneered first descents, co-authored books. The thing that's always impressed me is Chris's creativity in the missions he puts together and his incredible commitment to the ranges close to home. In 2007, he skied the 54 Colorado 14ers in less than a year, a Herculean task planning, and dedication. And when he chooses his next line, it's with a key eye to aesthetics. Thanks, Fitz, for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming, Chris. Yeah. Um, how do you come up with these kind of crazy plans? The thing, the thing that I really love about skiing, and, and uh, I guess, again, like Kevin, I grew up in New England and grew up at a young age. My parents introduced me to the sport, so I was very, very lucky. I knew from a pretty young age that that's what I wanted to do. Or, you know, somehow I wanted that to be a big part of my life, whether it was Know, working for a manufacturer, or loading lifts, or flipping burgers in the base lodge, whatever I could do to ski every day, that was the main thing. Um, obviously, I've been able to figure out how to do it in a way that's, that's pretty fun. But the thing that's always been the constant there is I just love being out in the mountains. No matter the season, no matter the sport, feeling like you can escape the rest of the world for a brief moment and just be with your friends and Mother Nature. And, and look around and absorb all that. Um, that's, that's what does it for me. And, and it's funny, I, you might think that you know, going to the Himalaya and climbing Everest or going to Antarctica or going to these far off remote places is really what it's all about. But I have the exact same feeling there that I have here in these Colorado mountains or in my backyard or going back to Tuckerman Ravine, New Hampshire, where I grew up. In terms of like the projects you work on, you do you have um, 
you have an opinion about what makes something beautiful. You, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but he wrote a beautiful book uh, called Petit Classics Key Descents, um, which is just a gorgeous coffee table book that sort of is a survey of, of North America skiing yep. and the best lines. And so, like, what, yeah. are, what are the elements of a beautiful line? When I was in high school, I used to doodle, like, what I would consider the ultimate ski mountain. That was what I would do. I would draw and I put cliffs in here and like, you know, a little of this, a little of that. And like, I try to come up with like in my mind what was like the ultimate run. I don't know. I always had this sort of uh, dream of finding that. Um, I still haven't found it, but there's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, but yeah, so that's what, that's what drives me is the, the beauty of the line. And that's what was really the foundation of this book was trying to find in all of North America 50 of the most beautiful, awe-inspiring, face-melting, mind-blowing things that you could ski. Not all of them are extreme or, or difficult. There's some of those, but you know, some of them are also very easy and doable tomorrow. And so we wanted to have a kind of a whole blend of things. And you know, when you when you pull up to the trailhead or to the beach or to whatever it is, and you look and you see that thing and it talks to you, it goes, "Come here, come on, like come ski me or come climb me." You know, that's Mother Nature at her finest. We as humans just kind of try to live up to that, but she invites us to share it. Why do you think it's important to, to I mean, because I think it, it can be tempting in the outdoor world. Like, I, I think our marketing can sometimes, like, be, like, further and, you know, yep. more and bigger and higher and all that stuff. But the truth is, is that there's, like, incredible beauty everywhere. And I guess, like, why is it so, why, why do you think, it almost seems like you've taken it upon yourself to make that point yeah. with your projects. Why is it so important to make that? Human, I mean, human nature is a funny thing, you know, like we as humans always want to keep pushing in, in various ways, shapes and forms in life and sports. It's constantly about bigger, faster records and this and that. And um, it's always been that way. But we've come to a point in society, especially in North America now, where it starts getting kind of dangerous. It starts being a, kind of a slippery slope, right? Um, I guess, yeah, I guess what it comes down to is like we have to look inside ourselves to come up with interesting things to do. And, and uh, you, you know, you mentioned earlier just like Colorado. I mean, there's lifetimes worth of adventures right here in our backyard. I, there's like hundreds of mountains in just in the elk range here in our backyard that I haven't skied yet. And I've skied a lot of them, but there's still more and more. And every time you stand on one, you see 10 others that you didn't maybe notice before. And so uh, like this spring, in fact, starting really on Monday, um, myself and a couple friends are um, kind of continuing, I guess, what we did in the 14ers project is to try to climb and ski the 100 highest mountains in Colorado. And um, the whole reason of doing this is it's a great adventure. It's by setting that goal for yourself, it's going to take me to places that I probably wouldn't go had I not committed to following that path and trying it. You know, going, thinking about skiing the 14ers in 2006 was really daunting. Like, I didn't know how I was going to try to pull that off. Now that I've done that, what we're about to try to do in the next five weeks doesn't seem like half as big a deal. I feel like I can go way faster because now I know what I'm capable of because you've pushed yourself and then the bar gets raised. But again, always, always, when I talk about this, I always want to sort of temper the conversation with safety because it's not about going out there and trying to do the more risky thing you know, for, to justify being sponsored or to justify getting in the media or have a, you know, a camera pointed at you. Again, it has to be in here first inside your heart and inside your spirit. And then if it's cool to the consumer, to the public, to the, your sponsors, then great. But if, it, if you're just doing it for that reason, like I, got, I, got, I made a mistake this winter. I got caught in a big avalanche uh, on the Eiger in Switzerland like three weeks ago. 
cameras rolling, helicopter out front, skied into a line that I had a little bit of doubts on, but it, it didn't have a lot of secondary exposure. So I was like, yeah, I, I think I'll risk it and skied into it. Sure enough, big fracture, and then it stepped down even deeper, and I was going, you know, a thousand miles an hour to a gigantic Bergschrund, and I went for like a thousand feet. Fortunately, like bounced over the Bergschrund, and uh, lost all my gear, but I wasn't buried, and it was it was okay. And I was like, you are such an idiot. Like that is something that I know I shouldn't be doing, uh, or I shouldn't make that mistake. I of all people shouldn't make that mistake, but you know, the camera was rolling, it was out there. And I'm like, I think I got this. And I got caught. So. Yeah, human nature. Nobody's perfect. You find yourself like uh, you know, you skied so many peaks all over the world. Do you find yourself drawn back to one particular line, like that something that sort of resonates or that new memories always come up? It's right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Sopris is a line I ski every year, multiple times. I live in old snowmass, and that is in, outside our living room window is Mount Sopris. Boom, right there. So I stare at it, and I, I, I run up in the summer, and we go backpacking up there in the fall, and we ski it in the spring. And um, so, yeah, that's one that um, I love just because it's kind of local. Uh, I think that one of the greatest lines in the entire continent is the east face of Pyramid Peak, right out. You, know, you see from Highlands, you see from uh, driving into Aspen before the roundabout. That is absolutely legit, legit one of the best lines around. It's so. It's big and steep and scary, but so aesthetic. And we come back to that, the aesthetics, the beauty of it. It, it doesn't get much more awesome than that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to come across as like too existentialist or like spiritual. I mean, but these mountains have energy in them and the earth has energy in it. And I think we as humans sometimes can really tap into that and take draw a lot out of it. Um, I'm sure some of you feel that the power and the emotional times when you're in a beautiful place surrounded by friends, it's like, doesn't get much better than that. Um, I'm a big believer in, in um, getting young people out into the wilderness because it's so empowering. Um, and I think it teaches them self-confidence. I think it teaches them humility. And uh, I think it teaches them respect for other humans because it puts everything in perspective. And so I think you can teach it. And I think it's, like, it's up to us as people that live this amazing life here in the Roaring Fork Valley and are outdoors all the time whenever we travel to then share it with other people. So how much of it is like kind of this physical art form too? Can you also be an artist too doing this? Yeah, I think it's totally uh, artwork. I mean, when I, when I stand up on top of a, a mountain or a line and I hang my tips off the edge and I look down and I run through what I'm about to, um, what I'm about to do, and then you're going to go execute it, um, that's such a powerful and awesome moment. And so that's what I do. I stand on top and I look at the line and I figure out or think about how can I have the most fun possible with this line and be safe at the same time, obviously, like being aware of whatever hazards and dangers are out there. But like I just look at it as a, as, as a, a five-year-old kid that walks up on the, the town playground and he looks at that jungle gym and goes, okay, what can, what can I do with this? You know, like I'm still that kid. I'm still looking at the mountains the same way. Like, yeah, that's the canvas. It's like, what are you going to do with it? Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's give Chris a big round of applause. Thank, Thank you. you.
Thanks again to Kevin and Chris for getting up on stage with Fitz on a beautiful afternoon and sharing their perspectives and stories. We'll have two more stories from James Walsh and Kyle Dempster on the next episode. Okay, big round of thanks to everyone that's made this happen. The live five-point event means so much to Fitz and I. It's rad to be able to sit in a room and see the give and take of the folks on stage and the audience. It's an energy that's impossible to manufacture. It helps fuel us through the rest of the year. So thanks to Patagonia for creating a place to gather around and hear stories. Whether it's over a campfire, over radio waves, or in a darkened theater, sharing stories is at the heart of our community. We're so honored to be able to tell some of them. Thanks for supporting creative endeavors like the Diaries and Five Point. Thanks to Sean, Jeff, and Annie of New Belgium for schlepping beer and helping keep the event festive. It's a nice sneak peek into the new beers you're brewing and to hear what you're excited about. Thanks to Steve of Steve's Guitars for opening up his awesome shop. I've posted a few photos from this year's event on our website so you can see the setting. And if that doesn't make you want to come next year, well, yeah, I don't know what will. And finally, a big shout out to Julie, Sarah, and Jake for being the reason that we gather as a community each year and make this event happen. We see how you pour your hearts into Five Point and stir up an energy and enthusiasm in Carbondale that is unmatched. And it makes us want to come back every year. Forever. Can we do that? Additional support for the diaries comes from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Music today by our friend Ken Christensen and Cy True, courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. I'm Becca Cajal, signing off for Fitz. We hope you can make it to next year's show. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.